0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hey, folks, it's Jimmy and Dom here from the
1: future, and we have a special announcement we want to share with you. Jimmy, take it away. So Mysterious World has been going on for nigh on to five years now, and we have our fifth anniversary special coming up this August. And so I was thinking about what could we do to commemorate the fifth anniversary of Mysterious World? And one of the things that happens uh, every so often is people will send me accounts of mysterious experiences that have happened to them. And, um, you know, I'll try to provide a little bit of perspective on it or give them my thoughts. And it occurred to me that could make a really interesting episode. We have a big enough audience that we should have enough Interesting stories from people to fill an hour. So, if you've had a mysterious experience, uh, please think about sending it to us. It could be um, an experience of a of an apparently supernatural nature. You know, a miracle that happened or an apparition of God or one of the saints or an encounter with angels or demons. It could be a paranormal experience like a psychic experience, you know, premonitions or um, uh, appearances of ghosts or haunting or poltergeist experience. It could be cryptids like uh, Bigfoot or some other kind of cryptid. It could be UFOs or aliens. It could be shadow people. It could be a near-death experience that you or someone in your family had an NDE or an end-of-life experience like a crisis apparition or something like that. If you've had a mysterious experience, uh, please write it up and uh, send it to me. You can send it to mysterious at sqpn.com. Once again, that's mysterious at sqpn.com. You can also record it in your own voice and send it in. Um, And even if you've already sent it in in the past, if you send it now, that will tell me you're interested in potentially having it in our fifth anniversary celebration. And I don't know that depending on how many we get, I don't know if we'll be able to use all the ones we get, but I'd really appreciate hearing from the audience. And I think the audience would appreciate hearing what their fellow listeners have had happen to them that was mysterious. So thank you.
0: Excellent. Yeah, that'll make a great show, folks. So we look forward to receiving all of your feedback and your stories. And like Jimmy said, you can send it to any of the usual feedback locations, addresses that we have, and we'll uh, use that in the show. Thank you. And now back to the show. You're listening to episode 246A of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious feedback on some of our recent episodes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So let's get right into our first bit of feedback. This comes from Ellen from Maryland on episode 203 on The Animal Afterlife. And here's what Ellen has to say.
2: Hi, Jimmy and Dom. Thanks so much for your podcast on Animal Afterlife. I really enjoyed it. It's so great to be able to give somebody a podcast when they're grieving over a lost pet. Um, I actually live in La Plata, Maryland, which is right down the street from the historic Port Tobacco Village. So I really loved that you covered the blue dog legend. Um, I wanted to add a couple things, that Port Tobacco is actually a larger area than just that small historic village. Um, there are many homes there. I have a friend who grew up there. And two things about it that I thought added, might add to the podcast is that um, there is a restaurant called the Blue Dog Saloon there. It has excellent food, features the legend on its menu and in its artwork. Um, really cool local stop. Um, Also, Port Tobacco is home of the longest continually operated Catholic church in the United States called St. Ignatius Chapel Point. Um, It is a beautiful church with really cool history. And it has the latest, for residents uh, who live close to it, has the latest Sunday mass time in Charles County at 6pm. So we always know we've got that one in case we miss the others. Thanks so much. Bye
1: bye. Well, thank you very much, Ellen. Uh, I think we mentioned the Port Tobacco Inn restaurant in the episode itself, although I could be mistaken. But uh, it's cool to have some additional information about the area. And thanks so much for letting us know.
0: Excellent. So our next feedback comes from Matthew on our Discord community. And he writes, I've recently been randomly listening to old Mysterious Worlds and came across the weight loss episode. And paraphrasing, Jimmy said that putting USDA in charge of nutrition guidelines is like putting the fox in charge of the hen house, which I can agree with. But I think it goes back further and is a bit more complicated. The Farm Bill's and USDA's control of commodities was a post-World War II development that started in 1949-1949. During the draft of World War II, the young men that were coming into the military at 18 had yet to achieve their full growth and fighting weight, so the military not only had to train them, but also had to feed them up. From the very beginning, the farm bills have mostly been a cheap food and school lunch bill designed to get protein, meat, and starch, bread, into the mouths of the youths, so by draft age, they just have to be toned and trained and these policies have evolved but basically stayed in place through the Cold War and into the present. The current nutrition titles in the Farm Bill account for 76% of the outlays. Those include school lunch, WIC, and similar low-income nutritional supplement programs.
1: Thank you very much, Matthew. I uh, haven't researched the history of the school lunch program and how it relates to all this. Uh, You know, these days people have just hear USDA food guidelines and they assume that without really thinking that that the USDA must be some kind of authority on, you know, medicine and diet and what people ought to eat when in fact it's not. USDA stands for United States Department of Agriculture. So this is not a group of medical experts, um, at least not institutionally. That's not its function. It's not like the CDC or, or something like that. Um, instead, uh, it's an industry-based group. And because of, of a phenomenon known as regulatory capture, what tends to happen with government agencies is the uh people in an industry end up getting their people into the agency that regulates that industry and that's and thus they can introduce policies that are favorable to the industry, and um, they have therefore captured the regulatory agency, which is why it's called regulatory capture. And the USDA has been regulatory captured by big food um, the, uh, the same way other agencies have experienced regulatory capture. And so it's USDA guidelines historically for what people ought to eat theoretically are really based on industry preferences rather than actual medicine. And they have just been kind of prettied up to make it look like they're medically based when, in fact, they've been horrifically bad for the American public and are, have not been science based and have increased things like obesity and diabetes enormously in the United States. So, yeah, I think it's a fox uh, guarding the henhouse situation. But the uh, backstory about World War II and um, the Cold War and trying to make sure that American fighting men were up to fighting weight when they joined the military is an interesting backstory. I'd love to learn more about that.
0: Yeah. And I should point out that Matthew uh, on Discord is a farmer who ah. has joined us on the secrets of technology to talk about farming technology so uh he's, hey cool so he'd know a bit about this area that's his his uh, area of background yeah so, so our next feedback comes from Lukasz Zawadnik via email who writes hi Jimmy and Dom i found your show a year and a half ago and since then i managed to listen to almost all of your episodes and each week i'm now looking forward to new ones during my studies of dogmatic theology i learned that after the fall People lost their supernatural gifts and graces, but it was not so simple that we lost only supernatural grace, but our natural gifts as well, as will and reason were harmed as well. It was explained that our loss of these gifts was akin to a paper being ripped in a jagged way. At the point of the rip, there are valleys and hills, where valleys are where our nature was harmed in its natural gifts. However, here we come to my theory at last. What about those hills? Are they places in us which retain some of the supernatural gifts given us by God before the fall that could correspond with things like Aquinas' natural prophecy or even things like remote viewing?
1: Thank you for your response. So thank you, Lukash. Um, the idea that we had abilities that we no longer have is more of a theological opinion. It's not church teaching. Um, but it is a very common opinion. And if you like read St. Thomas Aquinas, he thought humans basically had superpowers before the fall. The idea that we, um, that modern psychic abilities may be a remnant of preternatural gifts from before the fall is, uh, something that has been explored by Catholic parapsychologists. In fact, in particular, um, there was a 20th century Catholic parapsychologist named Father Alois Weisinger. And we'll have a link to his book, Occult Phenomena in Light of Theology, where he talks about how he thinks the, um, the various psychic abilities that people display today are, in fact... Things that would have functioned more powerfully and more reliably for us uh, prior to the fall of man—that they're just native parts of human nature. Um, the arguments that he uses, I will—that he uses for this, I will will just mention—are a little Thomistic for my tastes. He's—he's um, he's clearly in a Thomistic mold, and personally, I think that—that um, that it's harder to settle a lot of these issues philosophically in the way that Thomists frequently do. I think there needs to be more empirical work done. I don't think you can deduce as much from first principles. Um, But uh, in terms of... Are these part of human nature? Uh, I think, yeah, if psychic powers exist, that's what they would be. And would they function better in an unfallen or glorified human? I assume so. So I uh, am quite sympathetic to his basic thesis, but we'll have a link to his book so, we're, so you can read it for yourself. Our next grouping of feedback
0: comes from episode 231 on Lonnie Zamora and the UFO incident. Um, Michael McFall writes on Facebook, I love this episode. I want to believe, and this encounter is difficult to explain away. Thanks, Jimmy. By the way, I watched the episode on YouTube. The graphics really make the experience better compared to just the podcast.
1: Thank you, Michael, and I agree. The we were we started doing um Dom and I started doing our own initial video version of the podcast, which was extremely simple. Um And in fact, Dom does the editing on these feedback episodes. But for our main episodes, we were very fortunate to have uh, Oasis Studio 7 uh, volunteer to do the video and animation work for those. It really does add to the program. So if you're a listener to just the audio version of the podcast, do check out um, the video version. You can find it at my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken and I am trying to grow my channel. So I'd really appreciate it if while you're there watching an episode, you would click the like button so the algorithm knows to tell p- other people about the video, and also I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe. We are currently trying to get up to 40,000 subscribers, and so I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a video whether it's Mysterious World or one of the others, I do. And thank you very much.
0: Don Franco writes on Facebook, great podcast, and I particularly like this episode. I have two questions. The officer's glasses fell off. Could he report accurately what you couldn't actually see? Being unable to see clearly doesn't give way to his testimony. Also, he could have been under the influence. A wee dram on duty here and there could lead to impaired cognition.
1: Well, um... So in terms of glasses, glasses have different functions. People wear them for different reasons, sometimes because they're nearsighted, which means they have trouble seeing objects at a distance. And sometimes because they're farsighted, which means they can see farsighted distant things just fine, but they have trouble seeing things that are close up. Um, In my own life, I've actually been both nearsighted and farsighted. When I was very young in school, I was farsighted and I had to wear farsighted glasses and then it flipped and I had, I became nearsighted and I had to wear nearsighted glasses. After I got cataracts, I had to have the cataracts removed. And with the new lenses they put in, my vision is almost 2020. I I I things in the distance do get a little bit fuzzy and so I will sometimes wear glasses just to like read street signs in a dis- in the distance when I'm driving uh or you know dancers across a distant dance hall when I'm calling a dance and be able to see them with clear precision so I don't have to think more um but uh, I can still see things in a distance pretty well, and this object that um, that Officer Zamora saw was, you know, like the size of a car, and he saw people who were, of course, the size of humans. And um, I, 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 those objects are large enough. He should have been able to see them even without glasses, assuming he he didn't have some kind of crippling. Um, form of vision loss, in which case he probably couldn't be a police officer because you need to be able, among other things, to shoot a gun safely as a police officer. And if you're virtually blind, you can't do that. So if whatever whatever reason he was wearing the glasses, it couldn't have been because of extreme vision loss in terms of um, could he have been drunk? Well, I police officers are human beings. They sometimes drink on duty and I guess they can get drunk on duty. They shouldn't, but I imagine it happens. However, we don't have any evidence of that happening in this case. And also others saw the physical effects on the environment of the craft when they, when other people got there within just a few minutes, they, you know, there were still patches on the ground in the scrub that were smoldering and they saw the indentation. So, um, i I think that the fundamental account that Officer Zamora offered is probably accurate, though these are things that need to be considered.
0: Central Scrutinizer on Discord writes this was a pretty cool episode. Always love hearing Jimmy and Dom break an unusual case down based on the presentation. I'm not so convinced Alien makes the cut for top explanations. First, we have to trust the government would admit to these experiments second. Jimmy never considers foreign tech. And third, the way Jimmy describes a balloon as floating on the wind and therefore moving slowly doesn't account for very heavy metallic balloons. When they are released, they go up pretty quickly. Also missing, unless I'm mistaken, is the light conditions. No mention was made of where the object went when it went up, except that it went fast. Was it too dark to see? It doesn't seem like it, since Jimmy said the sun hadn't set. Just some thoughts. Still, no
1: one does it better than Jimmy and Dom. Well, thank you, Central Scrutinizer. Um, When it comes to the possibility of foreign tech, you know, I didn't want to make the episode overly long. it seems unlikely to me that foreign technology would be involved in this case because this is 19, you know, the 1960s. And in order to propose foreign technology, you would have had to propose that a vessel of foreign manufacturer that did not have wings, you know, so no airfoils, no conventional lifting mechanism, had gotten into the United States into New Mexico which is a significant way into the United States and that it brought with it foreign technicians who would then have been the people that Officer Zamora saw and it seems unlikely that in ni- in the 1960s that um, that a tiny foreign tech craft that had no conventional you know air wings or or propellers would fly into the United States with foreign technicians, presumably Russians or Chinese or something, and then really kind of do nothing. Um, It wasn't like a high-flying spy plane. This was very low to the ground, and there would be a risk of us capturing the thing. Because it apparently had some difficulties. And if you're having an experimental technology, you probably don't fly it over your enemy's territory because if if, if it's experimental, it's not reliable yet. And consequently, your enemy may get a peek at exactly what your cutting edge technology is. They may even capture it and reverse engineer it on you. So it would be very unlikely that, um, that a foreign power would fly an experimental craft of this nature into the United States with technicians who could be captured and debriefed. So I think that that's a fairly low order of uh, probability. Um, when it comes to the lighting conditions, um, and also uh, you, we mentioned metallic balloons, or you mentioned metallic balloons, that's possible, I guess. I, I, What he saw was n- apparently carried the technicians with it, though. So it doesn't look like... It was a simple balloon because you you can't really climb up inside a simple balloon. And it apparently carried the technicians inside of it because they weren't there after it took off. So that's one reason I wouldn't tend to favor that hypothesis. When it comes to was it still daylight, the answer is yes. It was still daylight. Um, Other officers arrived afterwards, and it was still light enough that they could take photographs of the smoldering shrubbery and, and and the indentations on the ground, which, you know, would be impossible to photograph at night without bright artificial lighting that they didn't have. So you can tell by the photographs that were taken, it's still daytime.
0: should mention that uh, Central Scrutinizer's question came in before the whole shiny spy balloon stuff that, mm-hmm. that recently happened. Uh, so it just, it's kind of interesting the confluence and coincidence there uh, of that. Our next question comes from Ryan Nafziger on Discord, who writes, something I just thought of that can explain most of the phenomenon, cartel drug smugglers. Not sure if there were helicopters with engines that can cause similar effects to afterburners in production in the 1960s. But if there were, it's entirely possible that a Mexican drug cartel could have gotten their hands on one not saying that a helicopter had to have a jet engine on it, just be capable of producing a flame-like one. It explains the lack of U.S. military involvement, but it raises some questions like how could the U.S. military possibly not know or detect that a cartel helicopter was so close to their missile range? But this seems much more plausible in the 1960s than today, especially before we had even gone to the moon and had satellites able to monitor activity from the air. Would love if someone more familiar with helicopters knew if this would even make sense. Also, I'm not sure if this was as plausible in the 60s as today, when cartels in Mexico have military-grade helicopters available to them.
1: So, thank you, Ryan. Um, I'm not an expert on helicopters, but perhaps someone who is can tell us whether he thinks this is a plausible theory or not. I would say that a mark against it is the fact that Officer Zamora did not see any rotors. Um, the He did see flame that emerged from the bottom of the aircraft, and I don't know of helicopters that have undermounted afterburners or undermounted. Um, the rocket engines uh, as part of their propulsion. Maybe there are some, I'm not familiar with them. Um, but in, more importantly, he didn't see rotors on or, you know, the blades that a helicopter uses to fly on the top of of the object. And he should have been able to see that if that was there. Also, uh, drug cartels in Mexico before the war on drugs, were not nearly as economically developed as they are today. This was the early 60s and the drug craze had not uh, had not kicked off the way it later did in the later 60s. And the modern uh, economic system of the drug cartels had not uh, become as powerful as as it is now. And so because of the lesser economic development, I would suspect that uh, Mexican drug cartels would not have this type of craft available to them.
0: And then Charles Buxton writes on YouTube, number one, the red insignia on the oblong object is composed of a an overhead arc surrounding on three sides, B, an arrow pointing up that is atop C, a horizontal baseline. Two, my guess is that this is either A, a manufacturing instruction, or B, an assembly instruction indicating which way is up, so that the landing slash resting struts should either be A, drilled, or B, inserted on the underside. Its English translation would be, this end up. Three, if the insignia was created by extraterrestrial intelligence, then might this be an example of the universality of symbols that can be understood by any intelligence?
1: Well, I think that 's an interesting interpretation charles um, it i You could kind of understand it that way. My question would be why would if this were like an orienting or manufacturing instruction, why would they make it so big because Officer Zamora was able to see it at a considerable distance, and normally when you when you have uh, items like that on an object, they tend to be visible only close up, they tend to be small. So I would want to know why, if, the, if it did just mean this end up, why is it so big? Um, having uh, Asking your second question, though, about could aliens have come up with the same symbol for this end up that we might, or at least a symbol that, whose meaning we could figure out, I think the answer is sure. Um, there's parallel cognitive evolution among species here on Earth To the point that, like, for example, humans and octopi who had ancestors in common 300 million years ago can still relate to each other in a cognitive way. We can tell what octopi are thinking, they can tell what we're thinking because of parallel cognitive evolution separated by millions of years. And if any species has developed technology and is able to fling itself between the stars, then it's going to have significant parallel cognitive evolution with us because we're also technology developers. And if it's able to develop technology, it's going to have cognitive similarities to us, even if it's clinically insane by our standards. It's still going to have a lot of similarities, and that could result in some parallel uh, symbolism like this end up. Rules 52 on YouTube writes, This, in my opinion,
0: is another strike against the college hoaxers. Let's follow the premise. These college students do not like Lonnie Zamora and they want to embarrass him. And so they pull off the perfect prank and get Lonnie to say, I saw a UFO. Now, if this was all true, wouldn't it be even more embarrassing to come out and say, Gotcha, of course I wasn't a UFO. Here's how we did it. Instead, our college hoaxers live their entire lives without explaining this awesome prank. They don't do television interviews. They don't want five seconds of fame. To me, that's very hard to believe scenario.
1: Yeah, I sympathize with that. Um, I'm also skeptical of the college hoaxer theory. I don't think it's well supported by the evidence, as I explained in the episode itself.
0: Uh, Brent Lynn sent this email: "Hello, Jimmy. Loved the show about the Socorro and agree that theories put forth to explain away the UFO sighting as something conventional are not convincing." One thing, however, I noted at the end of your podcast was you said since NASA didn't reveal they were testing technology, an alien spacecraft remains a possibility. While I agree that aliens or something else paranormal are a possibility, I think a top secret project from the military slash industrial complex, a project top secret even to this day, could be a contender as well. Asking NASA or the military whether they had tests going on does not guarantee at all that they will tell the truth. So I feel exotic, but earthly technology remains a possibility as well, especially considering the rocket ship-like takeoff of the craft. That part of the incident at least seems very conventional. Thanks for doing these podcasts and God bless.
1: Well, thank you, Brent. I agree. Um, I did not conclude at the end of the episode that this is alien tech. I I couldn't exclude it, but in particular, the, the rocket-like takeoff of the object so seemed very conventional to me. I don't know why um, aliens who move between star systems would be using a chemical rocket in Earth's atmosphere. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, so I also agree that this could easily be some kind of um, classified uh, technological experiment that they simply weren't able to identify.
0: Our next group of feedback comes from episode 232 on the spiral staircase. And the first is a photo from Joanna Geiger-Webster on Facebook, who says, here's a picture of it before the railing was added. And I will add it to the video stream for those of you who are watching.
1: Yeah, and it is indeed a picture of the spiral staircase in Loretto Chapel without the railing that was later added. Um, thank you very much, Joanna, for providing us with this picture. Um, I have read accounts of the nuns crawling up and down the staircase on their hands and knees before the railing was added, and I can see why. I'm, I'm six foot tall, and I would not want to walk up and down that, especially down it, um, without something to hold on to. I'm afraid I would topple off. It is quite narrow. And our next
0: feedback comes from Ben Polachek on Facebook, who writes, I actually visited this church a long time ago in college. I went on a trip for class where we spent two weeks in the Southwest and saw the star- staircase. I love New Mexico itself, and there are not only lots of mysteries there from Roswell to Loretta Chapel, but even smaller Catholic-related ones like the Sanctuary of Chamayo, north of Santa Fe, where people often take sick children to be healed, and apparently, if you eat the dirt from there, you'll be healed of illness. Not sure if the latter is true, but I haven't seen anything saying it's wrong for Catholics to believe something could happen.
1: Yeah, I'm not aware of anything either. I mean, I'm a bit of a germaphobe, so I would hesitate at eating dirt, but um, I can't rule out in principle. I mean, God can use material things to... Uh, perform healings. And Jesus himself used dirt, which he then spit on and made mud to heal a man's eyes. So, uh, so God can certainly do things like that.
0: And there's an excellent episode of the American Catholic History podcast where they went to uh, Chimayo and uh, they talk about it. So uh, check that Mm -hmm. out. Kathy Sehu on Facebook writes, thanks, Jimmy, for getting to the bottom of the mystery and honoring the truth. I have a book on the miracle of the sun. But
1: actually, now that you've made me think of it, I'm gonna mention sorry to interrupt, we'll, yeah. we'll get back to Kathy's yep. but um feedback. But there's an episode which I remember really loving of um Alfred Hitchcock presents called Strange Miracle. And it's set in I think Mexico or it's some it's in some, you know, Hispanic setting. And it's about two sets of characters. There's a husband and wife who are con artists and are uh, at a Marian shrine. And the plan is that the husband who is uh, is going to crawl towards the statue of Mary and then fake a miraculous healing And jump up. He's going to pretend to be crippled, and he's going to crawl towards the Marian statue, and then jump up and shout that he's been healed. And they're going to use this to make money. Meanwhile, another person who's visiting the same Marian shrine is a little girl who is genuinely crippled. And um, and what ends up happening at the end of the episode is the con artist crawls towards the Marian statue and suddenly cannot get up meanwhile the little girl is miraculously healed and can now walk and she says mary uh, mary gave her functioning legs because someone else didn't need them
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man <clears throat> that is called justice yeah uh, all right so here's uh kathy's uh Uh, feedback. Thanks, Jimmy, for getting to the bottom of the mystery and honoring the truth. I have a book on the miracle of the sun, which really does seem close to a breaking of the laws of nature, written by Father Stanley Yaki. He posits that God tries not to use miracles too often, and whenever possible, uses human intermediaries to do his work. In other words, miracles happen, but as Father Benedict Rochelle said, they're extremely rare. This makes sense because if a miracle irrefutably proved God's existence, Everyone would believe in him for entirely pragmatic reasons, and that's not what he wants. He wants us to choose him with our hearts and not just our heads.
1: Well, I think that that's an interesting theory. It's certainly a possible opinion. I'm not sure that that's the reason God doesn't do more miracles, more obvious miracles than he does. Um... It's a possibility. I'm just I think there are potentially other reasons as well. Um, But I definitely agree. He doesn't do a lot of obvious miracles. He may be doing miracles all the time, but they happen so regularly that we consider them natural phenomena in order for something to be an obvious miracle. It needs to stand out against the background phenomena of how nature normally operates so I, I would kind of qualify a little bit and say, I agree, He obvious miracles are rare, but actually
3: <clears throat>
1: divine actions in nature could be extraordinarily common. Um, they're just so regular. We don't recognize them as, as something exceptional.
0: AJ Parkour on Discord writes, great episode. I've always wondered about the staircase and nearly every Catholic article I've found jumps to the conclusion that St. Joseph must have constructed it without giving any evidence. The most likely natural explanation, while not as flashy, doesn't subtract from the beauty of the craftsmanship. And I would agree, AJ. Thank you. G. McFly on Discord writes, I recently read a popular consecration to St. Joseph, in which the staircase was, in as many words, cited as a total apparition or miracle, with no other explanation offered. I agree that the only possible supernatural connection is that maybe a novena was said— and the prayer was answered via natural means. Quite a far cry from St. Joseph himself rolling up with a magical cartload of Jerusalem pine and creating a physics-defying engineering marvel before teleporting back to another dimension. Though so that would be cool. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> what I read was published in 2020, so it's not as if information wasn't available. Some Catholic publishers have the best of intentions, but sure could it be helped by upping the budget for editors there's plenty to love about st joseph without tying the whole devotion to a legend that's less credible than a bigfoot sighting really a disservice in my honest opinion thanks to the podcast for the clear critical examination of the evidence st joseph pray for us
1: thank you mcfly and i uh, i agree i see a lot of similar you know presentations in christian media and catholic media where miracle stories are accepted without any cross-examination. And I think it's important that we do the cross-examination because that will um, let us accurately understand what the causes of specific things in history have been. Sometimes it's going to mean that we can't establish a genuine miracle. Sometimes it may be a providential miracle, like You need a staircase and you pray and you get one, but through natural means. And sometimes it'll be an extraordinary miracle. Um, But it's important that we not just accept claims without cross-examining them. And I agree, not enough people are doing the cross-examination. And also, I agree, St. Joseph, pray for us.
0: Mm, Yes. CR15 on YouTube writes, while the explanation may be this boring and mundane, something seems off about Cook's conclusion. So a bunch of guys in France made a prefabricated spiral staircase that happened to fit in Loretta Loretta Chapel with the exact specifications required and had it shipped off all the way to a territory getting raided by Apache Indians? Other examples of similarly designed and styled staircases in France? So Bishop Lamy paid roughly $5,000 to an aloof French immigrant to build an out-of-place spiral staircase because the nuns didn't want to climb a ladder? That sounds utterly absurd.
1: Well, um, uh, I, if it sounds that way, then OK, but that seems to be the evident that seems to be the solution that the evidence supports. Uh, there apparently are similar staircases in France, and the amount that was paid was $150 then or today after the inflation the government has caused. Um, And $4,400 today is not an unreasonable amount for part of a church building fund. I mean, people would pay that much money for a staircase today. So the story doesn't sound as as, uh, ridiculous or absurd to me, but you're entitled to your own opinion.
0: And then, oh, Tim, I forgot how I'm supposed to say your last name, but I think it's Tim Lucchesi on YouTube. I got called out on this last time I said it. And I I know I didn't say it that way. So I'm going to guess this time it's Tim Lucchesi. We'll
1: we'll get there eventually. We'll get there. Tim's a regular commenter.
0: (laughs) He is. Uh, He says, please make historical headlines a regular part of the show, even if it's just a couple of them. I've always loved finding those online. And this was just fantastic. Historical headlines and articles really put a story into context.
1: Thank you Tim I'm glad you enjoyed them I enjoyed doing them too um and at least in stories where I use newspapers uh for research purposes I will try to do that a a I got a subscription to newspapers.com a while, ab- a while back for research purposes. Sometimes you'll hearing me qu- you'll hear me quoting newspapers because I'm getting the quotation out of a book in which case I won't see the ads. Like for example right now I um I I'm working on an episode about the uh, mystery airships of the 1890s and I have books that reprint newspaper articles from the period but they don't reprint Ads from the period, but when I actually have to go and use newspapers from the period themselves, I will try to include some um, some advertising from the time because I I think it does add a nice cultural historical context to the show.
0: And Baxatet on YouTube writes, not a big fan of using the audio from the radio show so much. I prefer just Jimmy and Dom doing the voiceovers. Still a great episode.
1: Well, thank you. And uh, that's a that's a nice compliment to Dom and who does most of the reading on the show. I do occasional bits, but I like to let Dom have his chance to shine on the show. And um, I also, though, like being able to present a r- evidence in the voices of the original people and so we, it, I know it was a little bit hard to hear, but we played some audio of Officer Zamora. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the previous episode. Um, we, we had, you know, testimony from like some of the nuns who were working at the, who are part of the order today, recounting the stories that were told by their forebears. And I like letting people hear evidence in someone's own voice, because there are aspects that a a rereading, a reconstruction won't capture. Um, And so particularly, I like, and we didn't have this in this have that in this case. But um, I particularly like letting eyewitnesses recount things in their own voice when possible, because it makes it easier to judge their credibility. Nikola Krzyk
0: on YouTube writes, I don't really agree. So there are miraculous things that happen throughout history. And as the eyewitness nuns themselves said, this carpenter was an old man. Jimmy's conclusion is a 30 year old. That does not match up with the strongest evidence in this case. I love Jimmy, but he bows a little too much to science and therefore leans toward a natural explanation, even though the evidence is stronger toward the miraculous.
1: Well, I appreciate your perspective, Nicola. Um, my issue, or the reason that um, that I don't find the particular argument you named convincing is because I don't have good evidence that the nuns at the time said that the man was elderly. Um, the nuns today recount the story as an elderly man came, but that that detail of his age could be something that arose in the last century of retelling the story. So what I don't have is evidence of the nuns back in the 1800s saying he was an old man. Uh, if nuns who had seen him said he was an old man, then I would agree that the idea he was a 30-year-old would be implausible, but I don't have evidence dating from the period that would suggest that. Father Burke writes on YouTube,
0: "'Sorry, I'm not buying it. "'It's gonna take a lot to convince me "'that St. Joseph didn't build that staircase "'in answer to the prayers of those good holy sisters. "'A normal carpenter would have used nails. "'He would have put a railing up. "'He would not have meticulously made it out of 33 steps.' The idea that the stairway was functional and strong enough to hold all the sisters without any nails sounds like a bit of a leap forward in technology, perhaps a heavenly leap. Too many things just don't add up to make this a normal staircase building situation.
1: Well, Father Burke, I never, ex- never ask people to agree with me. I just present the way things seem to me, and you can form your own conclusions. Um, regarding the points you mentioned, even on a natural explanation the 33 steps may have been deliberate. You know, if this was a naturally planned staircase, the, you know, the, Got designed in France and a guy made the components and brought it over. Well, um, he may have planned for there to be 33 steps to correspond to the 33 years of our Lord's life. Um, it's, he knows it's going to be put up in a chapel, and that's a bit of numerical symbolism that he might have consciously chosen. So I don't think that it's a sign that this was miraculous because a natural explanation will accommodate the same thing. Um, when it comes to nails, well, even though they're very commonly used today, today, um, they haven't always been used in building projects, and especially in history, when metalwork was more difficult and more expensive, and you didn't have the industrial manufacture of nails, people may have been more inclined to use pegs, which were very easy to make. Um, anybody can make a peg, but very few people can make a nail. You need a blacksmith or something like or some kind of industrial metal foundry to be able to make those, but anybody can make a peg. Um, so, uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't see these as as proofs of of the miraculous. But one can come to one's own conclusions.
0: I would just add that in fine cabinet making today, lots of st- lots of times they'll use dowels and other pieces of wood instead of nails, so that's not uncommon. Yeah
1: our next oh, few- oh. also also i think the argument about not having a rail cuts both ways um it's it seems to me that st joseph would be just as likely or if not more likely to build a rail uh than than a human the fact there is no railing to me actually suggests human, I mean, normal (laughs) human rather than St. Joseph, because as I said, there are accounts of nuns being so fearful, they would crawl up and down this thing on their hands and knees. And if it was a miraculous staircase from St. Joseph, I think that he would have been more likely than an ordinary human carpenter would be to provide some railing. That's right. That's right.
0: Our next feedback is from our episode 232A, which was a previous feedback episode, And it comes from Father Matthew Schneider is a video. So let's
3: play that. Hello, Jimmy Akin. This is Father Matthew Schneider. I'm a priest of the Legioners of Christ, and I'm a theology professor at Belmont Abbey College. And I just wanted to uh, respond to a recent episode you had about confession at a distance. You argued that it might be possible thinking of it as an informational sacrament compared to the sacrament of marriage or matrimony. And I think that's the best argument for it, but I still think it fails. And let me just explain why I think that that argument fails and why I think we do need to keep uh, confession at some kind of physical proximity. We don't need to be absolutely together as, for example, I was thinking of at the beginning of COVID to try and set up a closed circuit microphone and speaker so that I could keep the six, eight feet social distance, but hear confessions where I'm just listening to a speaker, but that speaker is just, is wired directly to a microphone of the, of the penitent or confessant who is, you, you know, in their car or, you know, on the others, on the sidewalk nearby, uh, because that's the sim, physical proximity still. But the, the thing I think is that you have to remember what the quasi matter of each of these sacraments is. The quasi matter of the sacrament of matrimony is the will to have that permanent union for the sake of mutual benefit and for chi- uh, and of children, you know, exclusive with that uh, with that single person of the opposite sex, right? And that that resides in the person having that will, that that matter. It's part of them as a person. And the quasi matter for the sacrament of confession are the three acts: of the penitent, right, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. And those reside in the penitent. Now, the thing is the form in marriage resides in the same person as the matter, because the form is when the when the person says, I, John, takes you, Jane, to be my wife, etc., going on, you know, till death do us part. Uh, Whereas the the matter, I mean, the form for the sacrament of confession is in the priest. I absolve you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, there's a necessity, I think, for the matter and the form to be in some kind of physical proximity in that blessing, right? And so, you know, obviously we have other blessings, you might have like a confirmation or like when I was ordained, I was ordained in one of the basilicas in Rome, so the bishop was up there and he was quite distant from me when he was saying the ordination prayer, but it was obviously physically close. I was, you know, at the front of the church, one of 30 priests, you know, and I might have been 20 yards from him, but I was still in that same physical that physical space, that physically close, whereas confession over the phone of hundreds or thousands of miles doesn't really have that. So you have the form, which is in the priest, and the matter, which is in the penitent, which are separate from each other. And I think in that regard, it fails. Uh, So hopefully this helps you and your listeners try and understand why the church teaches this. Uh, This is just my own own argument. as someone who is somewhat well known online, I get asked to hear online confessions with some regularity. And so I've thought about it a lot, along with just thinking about it from the perspective of a theology professor in those in-depth things about theology, because I do think this the, the theology around the sacrament of confession is particularly interesting uh, going into Trent and, and the whole discussion that led to the decrees in Trent and things like that. But that's a little bit beyond where your where your audience would probably be ready to go with, the, with a short feedback like this. So. God bless, Jimmy. God bless, Dom. You have one of my favorite podcasts.
1: So thank you very much, uh, Father Matthew. Um, I think this is a debatable issue and I appreciate the input. Um, I'm not sure that I would say that the church teaches that physical proximity is needed for confession. Um, It is the church's practice at least historically, to insist on physical proximity. But I'm not sure that that rises to the level of a teaching. Um, In regard to your argument, the idea that there needs to be physical proximity between the form of the sacrament, which is the words that are used, and the quasi-matter of the sacrament would be a theological claim that would thus mean not a matter of doctrine. So it would be a matter of free opinion rather than church teaching. And I guess I would respond by noting that in matrimony, the matter or quasi-matter would reside in both parties, the husband and the wife, whereas the form of the words used to express matrimonial consent, I take you to be my husband, I take you to be my wife, um, that would be the form. Now, in a proxy marriage, which the church regards as valid, the two parties may be separated by hundreds of miles. Uh, You then send a proxy on your behalf to express matrimonial consent on your behalf. So during the marriage service where the marriage is contracted, the expression or the form is given by your proxy. And that form is separated from you who are not there by, say, hundreds of miles, but the quasi-matter resides in you. So it seems to me that um, in the case of a proxy marriage, the expression of the form by your proxy and the possession of the quasi-matter by you are separated by a great distance, and yet this is regarded as valid. So it seems to me that the same thing should be possible between the priest and the penitent in confession. I, as the penitent, could have the quasi-matter of contrition, confession, and absolution, or contrition, confession, and satisfaction. And um, and you, the priest, could have the form separated distantly the same way the form and matter are separated distantly in a proxy marriage. At least I'd be inclined towards that view. Uh, I didn't realize that um, you regularly get requests to hear confessions online, but I'm glad you don't honor these requests. The NSA and the Chinese Communist Party do not need to know what people's sins are.
0: Right. So our next feedback comes from Kathy from Memphis. It's audio feedback, and here it is.
2: Hi, Jimmy and Dom. This is Kathy from Memphis, Tennessee. I love your show and just finished listening to your most recent feedback episode, which posted on a Wednesday. While I love having that extra episode, I have to admit that for the next 48 hours, I will be thinking that since I just listened to Mysterious World, it must be Friday. However, I'm I'm willing to categorize that as a first-world problem and work my way past it. Please feel free to publish any and all episodes that you wish. Thank you for your insight and information, and have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you, Kathy. And just to let you know, the plan is to have our regular uh, mystery-oriented and question-oriented shows come out on Friday. Those are the ones with just a number. It's not modified. Um, And then feedback episodes and bonus episodes will come out on other days of the week. We don't want to replace the regular Friday mysteries or Friday questions with something else. So those will be on other days of the week, and they'll be modified by having... Um, a letter after the number so like our previous episode before this one was 246 and so this is 246 a to indicate that it's one of the um one of the extra episodes that's not focusing on a new mystery
0: in general the the well i try to get them out on uh, the, the feedback episodes on wednesdays just so folks know and are ready and we're trying to do them about once a month so Excellent. yeah our next feedback comes Shupi Uliuma on Discord who I'm just a love now being able to say that uh
1: yeah, on a regular basis. Very good. I also was gonna compliment you earlier for <laughs> pronouncing Lukasha's name right because it's spelled as an S with a with a carrot over it. Mm-hmm. And that little carrot symbol is used to make the sh. Sound in many orthographies, so you got it right as Lukash rather rather than Lukas. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm enjoying learning how to say all these all the different names. So thank you, everyone. Uh, so Ulyoma says on Discord as a comment with the issue of having the usual faith and reason analysis for interview episodes. May I suggest maybe that the analysis not occur in the episode itself, but maybe an extra shorter ten to thirty minute episode to come out a day or two later. In this case, it would feel less of a personal attack to the guest if Jimmy disagrees with him, but can still provide some of Jimmy's thoughts on some matters
1: yeah i'm I'm still thinking about the best way to handle <clears throat> to handle um things like that and as I mentioned before and i'm I plan on experimenting with different models. different models may be appropriate for different guests um but uh I don't have a single solution that fits all situations that applies right now. So in some cases, I may still need to rely on listeners to know the basic principles without me having to repeat them every single time a topic comes up on the show. You know, you you all know I'm a Catholic. You know, I'm an Orthodox Catholic. You can predict what I'm going to what view I'm going to take of various issues. And I don't necessarily need to start a fight with a guest about it every single time. I can just let the guest say what he believes and then we can go on and I'll trust y'all to be able to use critical thinking. That's what this show is about, is about critical thinking without everyone needing to be spoon-fed everything every single time. So, um... So, you know, it's a sign of my trust in the listeners and their intelligence and their critical thinking skills. Um, Having said that, I appreciate the suggestion. And another way of a kind of accomplishing the same thing would be to use would be to provide additional perspective um, in in a feedback episode. Um, where we're already discussing rather than having like a 10 minute episode on something as a follow up, having it as a 10 minute segment in part of a feedback episode might be another possibility. So thank you, Shupi Uliuma. And uh, this is a matter I continue to study.
0: Katerina DC on YouTube writes, I love hearing how many other people like me are interested in discussing the implications of aphantasia further from the mundane to the paranormal implications. for example." the viewer speculation about hauntings involving less clearly defined imagery. As one of the apparently numerous viewers who didn't realize we had Aphantasia until Jimmy's episode revealed it to us, that is, we didn't even realize that anybody actually experienced visual imagery in the vivid way most others apparently do, those of us without that ability had typically just developed lifelong mistaken assumptions about what everybody means by talk about visualizing things. I've not stopped exploring the possible implications either. I really do hope Jimmy later explores aphantasia further, at least mentioning when it might be relevant as it intersects with different phenomena. For example, might aphantasiacs be less suggestible or less susceptible to hypnotism? Might aphantasiacs struggle more with memory-related activities? At this point, I'm projecting from my own experience as an aphantasiac with a poor memory and who literally cannot engage in the visualization exercises often associated with hypnotic states. I've also wondered about the uh, experience of aphantasiacs versus others, as eyesight declines with age or with sudden onset blindness. Are we more able to cope with the loss of eyesight or less? A person without aphantasia might still be able to conjure up a visual image of a loved one's face, while the non-aphantasiac could only ever see this externally, and has lost the eyesight to review pictures. And maybe this ability would buffer us against depression, etc. I remain interested and perk up every time I hear the topic mentioned on the show. Learning that others actually have the visualization abilities described still sounds like a fascinating superpower to me. And realizing that the majority of people have it, whereas I don't, just opens up a fascinating box of questions about what else in our society many take for granted that everyone can reali- visualize when some of us can't, but didn't realize anybody could. It's just super interesting. Anyhow, I guess the length of my comment makes my main point, which is how interesting I find Aphantasia and how much more I'd like
1: to learn about it and see it discussed. Uh, Thank you, Katerina. And before I respond uh, directly, we also have a bit of response from our feedback coordinator. Yes, Rob Leonardi writes in response, As someone
0: with Aphantasia also, I too am curious about what you've mentioned and would love Jimmy and others to explore it further. There is the Aphantasia network at aphantasia.com who's doing scientific research on it, and they have some proof that it may very well provide some protection for PTSD. But I do want to confirm that for those with Aphantasia, we are able to move on faster and easier than others. My wife and I recently suffered a miscarriage.
1: We should note, move on. He's using it in quotes. So it's like we have the ability to move on faster. Like emotionally, yes. Uh,
0: My wife and I recently suffered a miscarriage and I had to understand how my wife was able to visualize our daughter playing with our other kids. Mm. For her, it still can be very emotional for her because she can visualize. But being able to understand, understand how Aphantasia affects me helped us grow closer together as a couple because I learned to be more empathetic and my wife was able to understand that I was not trying to be, for the lack of better words, cold hearted.
1: Wow. I'm so sorry to hear about your miscarriage as someone who is at, at the other end of the spectrum and is highly visual, even just hearing about your wife, imagining your daughter playing with the other children, man, that rips my heart out. Um, in terms of the overall question, so for both you and Katerina, you know, the study of aphantasia scientifically is new, but I will keep my, eye, my eyes open and see what I can learn. And we may have a, a uh, uh, an episode on it in the future. We'll certainly have discussion of it. Um, like I said, personally, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. I have a highly visual imagination, and I visualize some really complex things, as we'll hear about in an upcoming episode on synesthesia um and in fact the uh, Oasis Studio 7 is doing some animation for that episode to help you see in the video version of the podcast some of the things that I see internally so I'm very excited about being able to share that um on standardized testing in school I scored in the 99th percentile of space relations which is the ability to manipulate shapes in your head and I apparently have quite a good memory for sounds and conversations. So that indeed may cause um, more problems for me than someone with aphantasia in terms of ruminating on things or having a harder time moving on from uh, things that our aphantasiac listeners may have. So there are costs and benefits to everything and having a highly visual memory or, you know, or highly visual, uh, in internal experience may cause problems for us that, uh, that, that other po- people who, who don't have that same characteristic may not face. So, good point. We all have, uh, we all have different strengths and aphantasia may confer some of them.
0: Very good. So, our next feedback comes from Deacon Rob Hogan via email who writes Dear Jimmy and Dom, Regarding the recent show 232A, Mysterious Feedback, I'm curious as to whether something was perhaps misstated. Jimmy commented that, quote, slavery was the cause of American racism, end quote. Doesn't it seem more likely that American racism arose independently and results more from cultural and sociological differences and attitudes of superiority? After all, African slavery does not explain racism toward Chinese, Native Americans, Japanese, Italians, Poles, Mexicans, or any other group which has been subjected to prejudicial or racist animus. And hostile attitudes toward those of different color or tradition dates back even to the Old Testament. I had to back up the recording when I heard Jimmy say that slavery was the cause of racism in America. It was to be sure I I heard right. Could you explain what you meant by this startling conclusion? It seems more likely that slavery was accepted due to pre-existing racism and that slavery increased feelings of racism. It's too strong to conclude that if it wasn't for slavery, we would not have racism. Best wishes to you and the rest of the team.
1: I love the show. Well, thank you, Deacon Rob. Um, I don't recall the precise language that was used in that show. And since it was a feedback episode, I can't easily look it up in the script. Um... However, I would almost always qualify something along those lines. I, it, I, I suspect what the issue is, is we're using the term racism differently because you uh, refer to cultural and sociological differences. And that is not what I refer to when I speak about racism. Um, if someone is just culturally different or socially different, yeah, people may be prejudiced against them, but that's not racism. Because it's their culture is not their race. Um, race is a biological phenomenon, the way racism is classically understood. And so, um, it, as a result, I'm talking about biological racism, if you want to think of it that way the belief that some people are genetically inferior to others or biologically inferior to others. Um, If I did say something that starkly and without qualification, it would have been for purposes of making the point that the common and simplistic racism causes slavery narrative is mistaken. People owning slaves caused them to dehumanize the slaves, um, which led to an increase of racism. But that's not to say that there aren't other forms of prejudice against other groups of people, though not all of these would qualify as racism in the modern sense, as which I said, I by which I mean Believing that someone is biologically inferior. In the past, people have often viewed others as culturally inferior or religiously inferior without thinking that they were biologically inferior. For example, in the United Kingdom, uh, people in England frequently would look down on the Irish. Uh, culturally and religiously, but th- they didn't think th- these are subhuman, literally subhuman people who are biologically inferior. I mean, some people might have in in more modern times after the development of biological racism. but um, But just because someone was different from you and you thought, well, I've got a better culture or I've got a better religion or I'm from a better social class, didn't mean you thought that there was something biologically wrong with the other person. And so I would distinguish between cultural pres- presence and class prejudice and class prejudice and religious pre- prejudice from racial prejudice, understanding race as a biological phenomenon. In my understanding, the institution of slavery was the primary driver of the idea that other people are biologically inferior, along with the rise of evolutionary biology and social Darwinism in the 19th and 20th centuries. But there have been cultural and religious and class prejudice against other people all the way down through human history.
0: All right. So our next grouping of feedback comes from episode 233 on the Lee Harvey Oswald's first assassination attempt. Uh, the bis- first bit of feedback is some audio feedback from Brandon.
1: Hey, Jimmy and Dom. Uh, this is Brandon from Alabama. Love the show. Uh, find it very interesting for all the topics that you cover. I was wanting to talk about the uh, topic of the Kennedy assassination and also, in a roundabout way, time travel. There's a really good Stephen King book called 112263 that tackles the Kennedy assassination. But the main character, who is a high school literary teacher, finds a way for a friend of his to go back in time. And he's tasked by the friend to go back in time and stop the Kennedy assassination. And it also tackles the fact that Oswald most likely shot at General Walker and covers all of that. And he actually has multiple chances to do it. You really should give it a read and so should the listeners. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks. And thank you, Brandon. I haven't read the book, but I have seen uh, the TV show that was made out of it. Um, Someone made a miniseries out of it. And I remember being a Kennedy assassination student. I I was interested. And so I watched the miniseries and I enjoyed it. It was just called um, 1963. As I recall, just like the book, and um it was it was well done. Uh, I you know, I'm still open on exactly what happened with um with the Kennedy assassination. Stephen King came to the conclusion he thinks it's it was a solo act by Lee Harvey Oswald, and I'm open to that being the truth, but I'm also open to other possibilities as well. I think the evidence is mixed. But for an interesting depiction, of, uh, of of these events in a kind of science fiction-y scenario. I also can recommend uh, Stephen King's treatment of it. Um, the, at least the miniseries I thought was interesting. And, and I'm glad to hear that the book is interesting too. The next feedback comes from Nicholas Jagneau on YouTube who
0: writes, I knew about the Walker assassination attempt, but I didn't know the details until I heard your excellent recounting of the event. While I was listening, it occurred to me that this event explains Oswald's I'm just a patsy line. Here's what I thought. Speculation warning. Oswald is one of the two men seen around Walker's house. He's being coached through the attempt. The cameras also used to take photos of Oswald at the site. This means that Oswald is dirty and this proof. If Oswald is, that, is the Kennedy shooter, then at the Walker house, he certainly doesn't display the kind of marksmanship that he showed in Dealey Plaza. In the JFK assassination, the shooter fired three shots, hitting a moving target at nearly 90 yards away. With Walker, however, the shooter shot just once, missing from within 75 yards. It seems to me that the two shooters were different. Oswald is told to bring his rifle to the book depository, leaving it there for another agent who will do the shooting. He complies, and his prints are on the rifle. After the shooting, when he's arrested, Oswald realizes that the rifle implicates him and him alone. He now knows that he's just a patsy. By announcing that, the conspirators realize he'll reveal what he knows, and he has to be silenced. This is all speculation, sure, but it's plausible.
1: What do you think, Jimmy? I think it's plausible speculation. Um, It could explain uh, Oswald's I'm just a patsy remark um I don't know that they would have only planned on killing him after he said that um, frequently you know if if you if you're setting someone up as a patsy unless you have really strong- be- reason to believe he's not going to rat you out um you're likely to recognize you're going to need to deal with him anyway, so if you use you know a couple of assassins with gravity boots to kill the president. you may need to go in afterwards and and take care of the assassins themselves. I understand that's happened at various times. The next feedback comes from eighty
0: one over on on YouTube who writes three points: one FBI fingerprint expert Sebastian Latona found seven sets of prints on the letter, not one of which which belonged to either Lee or marina two. A March 27, 1964 FBI memo concluded that, quote, The lead alloy of the bullet recovered from the attempted shooting of General Walker was different from the lead alloy of a large bullet fragment from the car in which President Kennedy was shot, end quote. The test was conducted by Agents Henry Heiberger and John Gallagher. 3. Dr. Gwyn and his NAA were discredited in scientific journals in 2006 and 2007.
1: Well, uh, thank you, 81 over on. Um, I can't confirm those points without documentation, but they are interesting points that would be worth doing further research on for those who are interested in the subject.
0: And our last bit of feedback comes for on our episode two thirty-four, which was a weird questions episode. Tom Reichart on YouTube writes, in regards to the answer to the question about Down syndrome in the afterlife. Other examples of the ability to manifest in the form of our choosing, as long as it conforms to the will of God, are the apparitions of Jesus and Mary. Mary has appeared dressed in different heavenly garments in various races, but always as a young adult, even though she was older while in this life. Jesus has appeared as an infant, child, and adult at different times.
1: And that's true. Uh, Mary also has altered not only her dress, but her, and as you say, her races, um, in order to uh, project a different image to relate to people and be able to bring them to her son better. Um, also, the th- we see something similar in parapsychology. Uh, in appar- parapsychological apparition cases where the spirit of a departed person is apparently manifesting in a situation, they are frequently reported as appearing in clothes that they wore during life. But Not always. Um, There's an episode at a site, there's an incident or series of incidents at a site in California known as the Moss Beach Distillery involving a woman who was apparently murdered on the beach and um, has subsequently appeared at the Moss Beach Distillery. Um, She's sometimes referred to as the woman in blue. And originally, she apparently wore, was seen wearing clothing that was specific to the period when she was alive. But then she had a conversation with someone about modern fashion and changed the clothing that she would appear in. And in another case I'm aware of, um a a ghost w- of of another woman um was asked, so you appear in, you know, with different clothing and so forth, what do you really look like? And she said, "Well, I'm I'm really kind of a ball of energy, but I project these appearances depending on what I'm feeling like that day."
0: Wow. Uh- Wish I could project a new appearance. That's depending how I feel. <laughs> I suspect I suspect
1: it will be one of our one of our preternatural gifts in the resurrection.
0: Nice. Nice. Looking forward to that. All right. So that does it for this time. You too can send in your mysterious feedback on any of the topics we cover. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or by calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's
1: 619-738-4515. And um, if you want to see the uh, photograph of the spiral staircase without the railing that we talked about on this show, or if you want to see Father Matt's uh, video feedback, uh, be sure, or if you just want to see Dom or me, um, be sure and go to uh, my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Akin. And I am trying to grow my channel. So I'd really appreciate it if you would hit the like button to let YouTube know to tell other people about the video. And if you'd hit the button button and the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's one of these midweek Mysterious World videos or something else. And uh, I am trying to grow the channel. I'm trying to get up to 40,000 subscribers right now. So I'd really appreciate it. And thank you. Folks,
0: you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at Mysterious.fm slash 246A. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, Please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.